you have your Bibles, as we continue our worship now, the study of God's Word, uh, we turn to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Please take your Bibles and turn with me there, uh, if you have them. Titus chapter 1, verse 5 through 9. We began our series in Titus last week, and so we are in our second, uh, second sermon in this series uh, of uh, this epistle written by the Apostle Paul to young Pastor Titus, if you will, on the island of Crete. And we'll read Titus chapter 1, verse 5 to 9. Our focus this morning will actually be on the first part of this, uh, this passage, verses 5 and 6. And, but I'd like to read the whole <clears throat> 5 through 9 to give us the context. <clears throat> Paul writes, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that, he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Let's pray one more time. Father, as we open your word, we ask your spirit to fill us, guide us into your truth, be our teacher. Lord, not only show us the, the meaning of the text, Lord, convict us and show us areas where we need to uh, change, we need to repent of. And Lord, you use your word to conform us into the image of Christ. We thank you for this letter. Thank you, Father, that it is your spirit who will teach us now as we look into your word. We especially pray for those who are here and who do not yet know Jesus. May even through this morning's message, may, we, may you draw them closer to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, <clears throat> this, uh, the first service, I want to say, did an excellent job. Um, so I expect no less from the second service this morning. Uh, we had a quiz, and we're going to have a quiz, and I just, I'm so confident you know all the answers that I'm not going to have you write the answers down, but you can just shout it out, okay? Shout it out, okay? And don't be afraid of giving the wrong answer. I'll just simply tell you, oh, that was a good try, okay? But just give us the right answer, and then if you, uh, most likely you'll all, you'll all get the right answers. I'm, I'm very confident, very confident, uh, and uh, we'll just see, uh, kind of see, see where we go with this. All right, um, number one, question number one. Who leads this church? Wow, I've never heard. Okay. Uh, okay, if there's, uh, give us the, who leads this church from a biblical answer, okay? Jesus. Jesus, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah Fallen John, you guys need to say that a little louder, all right? Okay. You just need a lot, because uh, it was uh, Jesus Christ. Now, God, okay, you say, God, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Great. If you said the Bible, no, okay, that's wrong. <laughs> Don't give me Sunday school answers. It's Jesus Christ leads the church. We all know that. The Bible says that Jesus is the head of the church. If he's the head of the church, that means he's the leader of the church. Now, any church of Jesus Christ, the name is the name of Christ, should at least recognize that Jesus. That's so important. And when you get that right, the rest of the answers will fall in place. Because when, when, any, when it's somebody else who's leading the church, whether it's even Pastor Henry or Elder so-and-so or uh, Sister so-and-so, when anyone else is perceived as the leader of the church, that church is in trouble. That church is in trouble. Only Jesus Christ. Now, all right, that's an easy question. What is the same question? What is the name of the group of men whom le who lead as a Bible? All right, real good. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Hope you didn't look at the answer. Now, second que third question, what else are elders called in the Bible? Elders are called two other titles, two other names in the Bible. What are those names? Overseers, Overseers very good, or, and or bishops. Sometimes your translation differs. And, so what's the other name? Deacon? Oh, what's the other name? I heard it, shepherds. Thank you, whoever said that. Good, good. I think uh, uh, good. shepherds are another name, uh, or translated as pastors. Pastors mean shepherds. So these three titles, elders, overseers, shepherds, are all used interchangeably, or they, they're used synonymously, 
synonymously in different various passages of Scripture. And uh, <clears throat> so those are t- different names. So really, you can, from this point on, just start calling uh, Elder Bill, Pastor Bill, if you wish. Okay? Or you can just call me Henry, all right? Because you call him Bill, call me Henry. All right, now, besides Bill, uh, okay, or actually, no, I haven't got there yet. Uh, there are elders who lead this church. How many elders does that Bible have? It's a little harder. I should have told you, warned you. Three. Good. Seven. Good, perfect number. Twelve. You might as well twelve. Forty. Oh, man. Okay, no, okay. Oh, man. All right. Eight. That's good. The number is nine. Nine. Okay. The number is nine. Okay. I'm sorry. I had to count myself. Okay. That's, it's, it's, it's not a biblical answer. It's just nine. Nine is how many we have right now. Now, besides Bill, because I, th- I threw out his name earlier, and my name, okay, I'm, I'm one of those. Can you name one of the, other, one of the elders of this church? Bill. No, not Bill, not me. Dale. Dale, okay, I heard that. Okay, good. Jimmy, okay. Now, stop right there. Can you name one of the elders in our Cantonese ministry? Sam. That's good. If you say Sam, then you basically nailed two of them, right? Because Sam Chan, Sam Chung. All right, all right. There's others, too. There's others. Okay, don't, don't give me more answers. Um, who is our, this is, I think this is hard. Who is our newest elder? Albert Lee. Okay, great. Um, all right, Albert Lee. So you know, I'm glad you guys were listening. And then lastly, bonus extra point question. Uh, what do we call those men whom we are considering for the office elder, at least here at Asset Bible? Elders in training. All right, that's very good. So you guys got that. All right, so these are, uh, this year, by the way, uh, we know we haven't really announced it, but I want to announce it today. We have uh, two official elders in training uh, in 2017. Uh, and they're, really, they're joining with us and seeking the Lord, God's, uh, God's will with regards to his calling in their life. And that is Stan Leong and uh, Brian Lee. So just put those names down and pray for them, okay? Uh, you're thinking, some of you thinking, well, why those guys? Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> but and that's what they're asking, too. They, uh, they say, why me? Uh, but God, uh, we'll, we'll see as, uh, as we look at the scriptures this morning, you'll see uh, maybe, at least hopefully you'll see why uh, they particularly are, have been asked to join uh, as elders in training for this particular year. Now, on to, our, on to the sermon. Here at Esther Bible, we believe that Christ leads his church. He's the leader of the church, but he leads his church through a group of godly men known as elders. We call them elders. They are responsible to care for, protect, and lead the church. Now, they do so primarily through the teaching of God's word. Now, the presence of a group of elders is critical to the health of a local church. If you do not have a group of godly men you might call them something else in, in the respect, different churches. They might call them trustees. They might even call them deacons. I don't care what you call them. Uh, they are elders. But if you have a group of godly men, qualified godly men, whom God has called to lead a church, that church will be inevitably a healthy church. Wherever there's an absence of this group, a plurality of godly men, uh, you will find a church that is weak and in danger of being sick and very much in danger of being uh, caught up in false doctrine. So since it is so important that these elders are to the church, how do we identify and select them? How do we identify who God has called to be an elder of Christ's church? Do we just put out a job description and ask men to fill out an application if you want to be an elder of this church? We do that for pastors. (laughs) Craigslist. Oh, very good. (laughs) By the way, I like you. Do we hold an election, maybe, you know, like our country? You know, say, anybody wants to be an elder this year, submit your name, and we'll just vote. And anybody who gets over 51%, all right, you're an elder. That would make it easier, that's for sure. Well, uh, what does the Bible say, right? What does the Bible say about the appointing of elders? This morning's passage, as you can see by the title, Appointing Godly Elders, speaks to the appointment, the selection and appointment of godly elders in Christ's church, particularly with, for Titus to appoint elders on the island of Crete. It speaks to how we might identify those whom God is calling to be shepherds of his church. Last week, we saw in our study of Paul's epistle to Titus that this apostle, the apostle pens this letter to his spiritual son in a common faith. 
he encourages, and he writes this letter to encourage him really with the main theme of to speak truth or sound doctrine that leads to godliness. Truth that leads to godliness, right? It's, it's one thing to just preach the right biblical truth, but that truth is of no use if it does not produce, does not lead to godliness, to Christ-likeness. Just as this letter is a letter for Titus, it's also a letter for the churches and the Christians in Crete. Like his other epistles, Paul expects his letter to be read by the churches that Titus ministers along among. And uh, we see that hinted at the very end of Titus where he writes, grace be with you all. That is all in the plural. It is vital then for us as a church or for the church of Crete as well to have godly elders, to have elders who are able then to teach the truth that leads to godliness. And as we examine our passage this morning, I hope to challenge us as a church to look for godly men whom would teach truth that lead to godliness. They not only would teach it, but they would exemplify it so that we might follow their example. And as we look at these uh, two verses this morning, we're going to see two observations concerning the appointment of godly elders in Christ's church. Two observations. So now, <clears throat> these are, and you're thinking, especially uh, if you don't, you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm never going to be an elder, so this doesn't apply to me. But, uh, well, you're in a church that is going to be led by elders, so it applies to you. And so if you, I pray that this is something you would pray with us about. Pray for uh, those who are, um, God is calling in our midst. They might not even realize that God is calling them to be elders. There's a desire in their heart. They're, God's gifted them, and they're going to make great elders someday, but they might not realize even now. But that God would enable us as a church to disciple them, to, to, to encourage them, to train them up so they might step into the role that God has called them to be. So... Uh, Let's then take a look, number one, at the first observation concerning the appointment of godly elders in Christ's church. And that is, number one, the need for elders. The need for elders. Simply, we have a need for elders. I've kind of mentioned it in my introduction. But let's take a look at the Paul's, kind of re, Paul's first verse that conveys for us the need for elders. He writes in verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Paul here explicitly states Titus's mission, his purpose for being on the island of Crete. Now, the island of Crete is a very strategic island. It's in the middle, middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, it's a really a rocky kind of island, but it's, it's a south, south, southeast uh, of, of Greece. It's, it's actually part of modern-day Greece even today. And its location in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, where other, the, I think the Adriatic Sea uh, feeds into the Mediterranean Sea. So it's, it's a, it was a passage where you would inevitably, for maritime trade, you would come across quite uh, readily. And so as a place where trade took place, it also was a place where different cultures came, different religions. Man, this was a mixing place of religions and philosophies. There were various temples, various religions that were represented upon this island, including Judaism as well as Christianity. Apparently, we, we can convey or learn from verse 5 that Paul and Titus had traveled to Crete together at one point. It's believed that it took place after Paul's first Roman imprisonment, that is, after Acts 28. And <clears throat> there he preached, he along with Titus proclaimed the gospel. Now, in Acts chapter 14, 21 to 23, we can see there, we learn that Paul's kind of pattern for his ministry, his missionary journeys, that his general pattern for his missionary journeys involved preaching the gospel from city to city. And I, by the way, Crete was known as being the island of a hundred cities. Now, whether there was actually a hundred cities or not, this just kind of was known for, island of a hundred cities. And so it was this relatively small island, had a hundred different cities, and so you can imagine Paul and Titus going from town to town, city to city, preaching the gospel. Uh, normally, he would preach the gospel, and then he would, then after going through all the cities, he would then go back, and he would go back, and he would strengthen the disciples, encourage them in their faith, to, stay, to remain steadfast in their faith, and then in, in time, he would appoint elders, shepherds, in each, every church. He would probably select people who came out of, who had a, maybe more mature in their faith to be, serve as elders. That's what Paul did as a pattern of his ministry. But in this case, with the island of Crete, after preaching the gospel on the island, Paul, for some reason, was not able to remain. 
He was not able to return then to strengthen disciples and to establish elders. And so he left the task for Titus. He says, for this reason I left you in Crete. This was Titus's mission. And the, his purpose of his mission begin, is the clause that begins with that, uh, that, uh, the word that. And from this uh, clause, we see two important needs of the church in Crete. Two important purposes that, ti- that Titus is to fulfill. Two tasks that Titus is to fulfill. And not only are they important for the island, the churches of Crete, but they're important for the churches everywhere and of all time. Titus's mission here involves two tasks. We see the first task is that he would set in order what remains. And the second task is that he would appoint elders in every city as Paul directed. Now, these two tasks are not the same thing. They are not identical things. Nor, however, are they two completely different things. They are related. Titus is overall, and they are related in this way. Titus's overall task, his main big picture task, is to set in order what remains. And we'll talk about what that, we'll look at flesh, how that fleshes out. He'll set in order what remains. Now, of which the things that remain to do, the appointing of elders is one of the most essential. It's top on the list. That's why Paul actually lists it. I, want you, I left you there to set in order remains and to make sure you appoint elders because that's left, still left to do. So as we look at this first task then, we focus on the first task of setting in order what remains, we see the need for order in every church. The need for order in every church. The main verb here is to set in order. Now this, uh, <clears throat> this verb, set in order, sometimes it means to straighten. It means it's, a, it's actually the, the very root idea of this word is a, comes from the, uh, the, the word, has the word ortho in it, that is a rightness. And uh, we think of setting things right. And it can be the, just the, the picture of this verb. But this verb that's used here, it's a, it's a compound, it's a multiple compound verb that's actually quite rare in Greek literature of that day. Sometimes you kind of hear pastors say, well, this, this verb or this word is found only here in all the Bible. And that's, that's one of those words. It's only found here in all, in all the Bible. This is the only time this verb is used. What makes this verb even rarer, it's kind of neat, it's kinda, I'm kind of Greek geeking out here, all right? So just forgive me. But I think you'll, if you like Greek, and you'll, you'll find it very significant. This verb is found only one other time in all Greek literature. Not in the Septuagint. Not in the Greek fathers. You won't find it there. You'll find it in any other Greek literature. But you find it in one other place, so far at least, in a, an inscription uh, dating to 200 B.C. On, an, a, uh, on a rock, I believe, on an island... Can you guess what the island is? Yeah, good guess. Good answer. On the island of Crete. Exactly. So it's kind of neat because Paul is choosing a word that, at least, you know, from what we can observe, was only used or was known on Crete. It was kind of like a, if you will, it was maybe like a slang word that was known to Cretans. That's what they said. You know, this was the word that they would use. Now, the, the verb that this word is based upon was, had a little more common usage. It was commonly used also on the island of Crete. Uh, this, the, the related verb is something that had to do with basically <clears throat> of the, what lawmakers did on the island is that when they would establish necessary laws to create order in the land. That's why God gives us government, God gives us lawmakers to establish order in the world, right? So that we wouldn't just be completely chaos. And so Paul's instruction to Titus then conveys that the setting in order of what remains that, that, uh, that Titus would do is like what lawmakers would do. This is something that was essential, necessary for the functioning of the church. This is not a preferential matter. It's not a suggestion for the church. But it was necessary, needed for the effective functioning of the church, just as government is necessary for the church. Some people are out there, they, they, you know, they, they want to be anarchists. They want no government whatsoever. Oh, man, give it a year without government and you'll be begging for government. Well, at least a good government. Government serves a purpose, a very important purpose. And those of you guys who are involved in government, we thank you, even though we sometimes complain about you. Uh, we thank you for your service because you bring order to our world. And, well, <laughs> we need that order. <laughs> we need your go- the government to serve Now, there are, these are matters, then, that Titus is called to set in order these certain things that remain. He believes, he's telling Titus, these are necessary. 
So what are these order, What are these particular things that remain? Well, one of them, of course, is appointing elders. We've mentioned that already. But other things that remain would be the strengthening of disciples through teaching sound doctrine. In fact, Paul tells Titus later on in chapter 2, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. It's important that we have the teaching of sound doctrine. In fact, he tells, <clears throat> and, then, and not only that, but the second thing that remains is to rebuke false teachers. Later on in verses 10 through 16, uh, Paul tells Titus to warn them about rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers that are basically, uh, that need to be silenced because they're upsetting the whole church. Now, this task is important. These things are remain. Crete uh, was a, was a uh, probably a, a, had many churches that were very young in their faith. And because it was a, a, multi, a gathering place of different religions, different faiths, you can imagine the Christian faith probably quickly became mixed up with other, uh, other doctrines, other, other faiths. One of them particularly was a lot of Juda- Judaism, or the legalism of, of Judaism in that day. And so Paul tells Titus, you must set in order what remains. Complete these things. Write these things that still remain so that the church will be healthy, that it will be sound. And that is why you, need to, you will need to set in order to, to appoint elders. Later on, we'll see uh, at the end of verse 9 uh, next week that the importance of elders who hold fast the word so that what? So that they'll be able to exhort in sound doctrine. They'll be able to teach truth. And then they'll also refute those who are teaching false doctrine. These are things that remain. But Titus can't do it on his own. A hundred cities? Say a quarter of them have churches, 25 churches, and then going around to, to teach everybody sound doctrine and to refute all those who are teaching error. That's hard to do for just one person in this church, much less one person for 25 churches or 100 churches. Who knows? He needs the help of godly men. And so Paul tells Titus to select elders to come alongside in the churches. This is the kind of order that every church needs. And when Esther Bible was a smaller family church, you know, and a few of you here remember those days when it was just like, you know, you could fit everybody here on this stage. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> you could get by with a single pastor, right? You just had your pastor, the single pastor, and you didn't need much organizational policy. You didn't need much structure. Because the pastor served, it was his preaching and teaching. He would probably preach the, Sunday, preach the sermon and probably teach the Sunday school. His, his teaching was sufficient to teach the small group of believers the sound doctrine that was necessary. And if there was ever an individual or two came in with wrong doctrine, he, by his, on his own, could, was probably able to refute doctrinal error. But the church has grown. And there are more people here with more and diverse needs. There are uh, people with diverse and doctrinal backgrounds. We all come from different uh, churches. We each come with a different traditions, biblical traditions. And we can no longer presume, especially as leaders here, that it's simply a person attending this church. You, you nod when you preach. You, know, you say amen once in a while. That doesn't mean that you agree with all that this church teaches. And so we must set in order what remains. We need a more systematic way of teaching sound doctrine to the this large congregation. And so we create things like Sunday school classes. We have fellowship groups. We have systematic classes like fundamentals of the faith, fundamentals of church life. These are not commanded in Scripture, but yet these are programs that we use to, because we know that these create more orderly and a more orderly fashion for us to teach sound doctrine to the whole church, to all the members of the church. What's more, we've added things to this church so that we would be able to refute uh, error when it comes into our midst. We add things like uh, m- more formal membership. Why do we ask you to go through a whole membership class just to join the membership, just to be part of this church? All you have to be is a Christian, right, to be part of Christ's church. We understand that. But we want to have uh, membership classes so that we would be able to ensure that you understand the gospel. We want to make sure that you understand what it means to be a member of Christ's church. We want you to understand that what we teach as a church so that if you hold contrary that that you'd be able to submit to this, the teaching of the church, or maybe there's another church that might be more, a better fit to the convictions that you have. And so we have added, we add as a church, we add other men and women who help us in the ministry. We add order by, we, we, need, we need greater these programs and ministries to orderly fulfill our task to teach sound doctrine, to refute those that contradict and most importantly, we do so through 
identifying those who are shepherds, elders, who will lead us in this endeavor. And so it leads quickly then to the next, uh, the next task that Paul gives Titus, the need, and reveals to us the need for elders in every church, the need for elders in every church. The most essential of Titus' task is to set in order, to set in order was the appointment of elders in every single city. And we can make a couple observations just about uh, how these elders, we notice the title for elders that they're called. Here they are called elders. And we, are, we mentioned that they're also called overseers and pastors. They differ because they, they kind of show, diff, offer different aspects of elders. And this term elders conveys age. And with age generally conveys wisdom. The term actually comes from the Jewish synagogue use. The leaders of the early synagogues were, were called elders. They were the older men of the church. They, were, they would gather together as a, as a group and, and lead and make decisions. And, it, and as the term indicates, these were of necessity older men. And there's, a, there's definitely wisdom in having older men uh, <clears throat> lead not only the synagogues but also the church. Because older men generally made good leaders because they had the life experience, the wisdom to lead. They had the, they've had opportunity to be in God's word. They've had opportunity to study God's word, to teach God's word, to teach it to their families, their children. They've had opportunities to live it out, to apply. They've had opportunities to make mistakes and learn from those mistakes. They've had opportunities to see other lives, disciple other people, so that they would then be able to be leaders of Christ's church. Now, this is not to say that a young man can't be an elder. Perhaps if you're 25 and you're the godliest man in this room, if you're, you know, Jesus was not uh, 30, but he would have been an <laughs> elder in any church because he was the perfect son of God. But there's a practical aspect of this, this title, elders, that conveys just the wisdom. Sometimes we speak of young men who are called to be elders. We say there's a wisdom in him beyond his age. We've watched his life, and we say there's a, we've seen him apply consistently the scriptures to his own life, to his family, to his ministries. We see a maturity there, they're reflective of an older man in it, and so that he would be called an elder. By the way, just if you're curious, the overseers, the word overseers emphasizes more his task, that he oversees a ministry, his responsibility. And pastors convey more his relationship, that he's a shepherd. He, he has, a, he has a, a commitment to a, a flock, a sheep, and he has a commitment to them to shepherd them, and they are uh, those whom heed his voice. We want to secondly know, not only do we know the title for elders, the name for elders, but we know the, how elders are selected, the selection of elders. It says here that Titus was to appoint them. He was to put them in charge is another meaning of the word, to put them in charge. Now, <clears throat> this verse in Acts 14.23 indicate that the early elders were appointed by the apostles and their delegates. They were just simply delegated the task. Now, did this mean, though, that this appointment, that the congregation then had no input upon the selection of elders? It's just basically, well, elders get the choice, so whatever they say, that goes. Well, I mean, uh, <clears throat> that's possible, but not necessarily. In Acts chapter 6, verse 3, remember there, the selection of the seven because the Hellenistic widows were being neglected. And so they chose, the, the apostles, what did they do? They told the congregation, they said, select among yourselves seven godly men whom then we may put in charge, that is appoint, the same word, to this task. So there's an there's a, there's a example, really, a, a, of a case where the congregation was somehow involved. And as elders, we don't want to just simply say, well, we just think that guy's it. We want the whole congregation involved in the selection of elders because as a congregation, you, recognize, you ought to recognize a reputation of man, especially if you've been with us a long time. I mean, I could probably ask you, who do you think are elders? You should probably be able to list me. Oh, I think these guys are godly men. We've, I've seen their lives. I've seen their relationship with their wives. I've seen their relationship with their children. I've seen how they've served in the church faithfully. I've seen how they handle God's word. I've seen how they uh, taught sound doctrine. I've seen how they refuted, corrected uh, gently those who may contradict the truth. Those guys are elders. Those guys are shepherds. And that if we ask you to select among the church those who call, we believe that by the spirit of God's leading, he would lead in that way. And so we, oftentimes, we, we ask you to, 
when we would put names forward, the elders in training, hopefully you would say, yeah, I definitely see that that's a man who is qualified to be an elder. But I would like to further add that just because the the apostles and the delegates, and even now today, the elders are those who appoint other elders, it doesn't mean that somehow we just simply appoint them and they automatically become an elder. They may be an elder name, but they are not necessarily an elder in truth. Because ultimately, God is the one who makes people elders. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul told the Ephesian elders that it was the Holy Spirit who made them overseers, right? And so it's the Holy Spirit who ultimately makes someone an overseer. How do we know that? Because one of the gifts that, that elders are known for, we'll get to in verse 9, is that elders are gifted teachers. They should be gifted teachers. But this gift of teaching is given to us by whom? By the Holy Spirit. And so a man is, is, who is going to be called to be a shepherd of the church, is going to be gifted to be an elder, is one who must be made so by the Holy Spirit. And when we appoint elders, hopefully we're just simply recognizing those whom God has appointed or those whom God has gifted and made to be overseers and shepherds of Christ's church. Lastly, we want to note the number of elders. Notice that Titus was to appoint elders, plural, in every city. That is every church. Uh, I want to add that it is every city means every church because Acts 14.23 tells that Paul appointed elders there in every church. And then also Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, when Paul writes to the church in Philippi, he writes to the saints, the elders, and the deacons, all plural, of the church of Philippi. So there was plurality of elders, plurality of deacons, plur- and plurality of saints in the church at Philippi. So he appoints a plurality of elders. There are multiple elders. And there's wisdom in a multiple, multiple group of elders because, you know, we are, any one man is not, no one man is perfect. And we can have blind spots in our lives. We don't see, I, I our elders meetings sometimes go kind of long, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Uh, but we are, it's because we're discussing matters. And sometimes uh, we discuss things and we realize I don't see every, I don't see it, everything clearly. And it takes Bill or Dale or Jimmy or Sam's or Benny or Johnson adding in their perspective, something, another aspect of the scriptures and its application to us, something else that they are aware of that brings us to a greater clarity of what God, how God would want us to lead and as a church. We need a plurality of elders in every church. Now here at Essence Bible, we are always looking to appoint elders. Sometimes, uh, you know, we talk about how many elders do we need? As many as God has appointed to be elders of this church, right? That's the answer. If God would appoint 100 elders, let's have 100 elders, no matter how long that meeting goes, okay? <clears throat> Maybe we'll be faster. Who knows? But as many as God will appoint, we'd, we want that many. We want to recognize those men whom God is calling to be elders. And this year, we, we have two elders in training. Pray for them, please. As they are seeking and we are seeking God's will for their lives, whether to confirm God's calling, whether God is calling them to serve as elders of Christ's church, to be shepherds of this church. Pray for the current elders, too, as they continue to serve. Understanding the need for elders, Paul re, uh, then reiterates for Titus the kind of men that he is to appoint. This leads to our second observation. The second point is the needed qualities for elders, the needed qualities for elders. In verse, uh, really, it's verse 6 through 9, but I'm going to focus on verse 6 today. Paul writes in verse 6, Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. And so, the first, there are multiple qualities here, but first of all, the first quality we look for is a general overarching quality that we look for an elder who is above reproach in general. That in general, in general, in, in overall, he is above reproach is the term. Uh, this quality is so important, in fact, that it is repeated in the next verse as well. In verse 7, you'll notice that, therefore, an overseer must be, it is necessary for him to be above reproach as God's steward. The word can also be translated blameless. It pictures one whose character cannot be called into question. 
there's basically no one who can raise any accusations, at least accusations that will stick against him. This kind of, uh, this kind of attribute is reflected in a man like Daniel. You remember Daniel, who uh, was a slave who served in the Babylonian and Persian empires? He was raised to second in command of all the land. And so the other leaders around him were jealous of him. And they wanted to find something, some dirt on him. He's a politician. Why isn't there any dirt on him, right? There's dirt on all politicians, supposedly. But when they looked for something to kind of dirt to nail him on, accusation to bring against him, Daniel chapter 6, verse 4, they could find nothing. Because Daniel was a man who was above reproach. And in fact, the only thing they could find, they had to make up a law because they knew he would pray. And they say, well, if you don't pray, if you pray to somebody else besides the king for the next 30 days, you are in violation of the law. So you know that story. Such a man, a man who is above reproach, is going to be one who has a good reputation then. He has a good reputation in the church. He has a good reputation outside the church. Now, I would add that to be above reproach does not mean that he is sinless, right? Because if a man has to be sinless to be an elder, no one's going to be an elder of the church. None of us meet that qualification. Except Jesus. However, when a man sins, it's not if, it's when, he's going to be a man who's quick to confess his sins. He's going to seek forgiveness from the Lord and others. He's going to be a godly man. You know, he's going to be a man who basically is quick to confess his sins. You know, it should be this past week, you know, hopefully an elder is going to be one who's, even this week, has apologized to somebody ask forgiveness from somebody because as human beings we sin we sin throughout the week we've offended someone if not this week well hopefully within the well I imagine within the past month and that if we are the godly men whom God has called to be we will be quick to say you know I'm sorry I shouldn't have been so short I'm sorry I I wasn't so forthright about what happened there. I'm sorry that what I said was not very sensitive and, uh, you know, was offensive. I'm sorry that I dropped the ball there and I didn't keep my promise to you to play with you, as I said I would. No matter the, the nature of our sins, we see it as sin and that we want to confess it to the Lord and we want to confess it to those whom we offend we're going to have a sensitivity because we don't want to be men who are blameless, who are, have blame, who can have an accusation against us. But I would add that this requirement of blamelessness above reproach is not just something that's expected only of elders. That only elders need to be above reproach. In fact, deacons need to be above reproach. And then many of you here are deacons, deaconesses, ministry leaders, in fact. 1 Timothy 3.10 tells us, uses the same word as for the qualifications of deacons. In fact, this is, why, this is why we as a church have been moving for all our ministry leaders, all our ministry leaders met in January, to be deacon-qualified individuals. It's because we see that you are a leader of Christ, in Christ's church. And we don't want to create another third category, fourth category for you. We just want to recognize you as a call to be servants who serve in Christ's church. And if you're servants who lead in Christ's church, then you should, be, you should meet the qualifications that of to be above reproach. This would, and this because, and this is not just for leaders. In fact, the reality is all these qualifications for elders and for, even for deacons, except for the gifted part, the giftedness part, are expectations that we are, are Expectations that are God expects of all of us as Christians. That we would strive for holiness. We would strive to live lives that are above reproach, beyond reproach. We would not allow ourselves to continue in sin. And because, and, and so, so therefore, all of us, whether we are, even if we're not elders, we're not striving to be elders, but we would all keep resisting temptation and sin. Would not allow sin to take a foothold in our lives. In the reign of verse 6, Paul elaborates on what is most, the most important area that an elder needs to be above reproach in. 
that he needs to be above reproach in his family life. In his family life. Because in Paul in 1 Timothy 3, 5 says, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? You see, if a man's not a faithful, he's not above reproach in his family, if he's not being a good shepherd of his family, he's not going to be a good shepherd of the church because the church is a family. So in the home, an elder then must be, first and foremost, a godly husband. He has to be a godly husband. Paul says he must be the husband of one wife. This phrase is also found in 1 Timothy 3.2, verse 3.12 of elders and deacons, respectively. And the meaning of the phrase, the husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man, has several possible interpretations, several interpretations. And and some think that it says that elders need to be married men. Uh, That's... But that's not likely because it would disqualify men like Jesus or the Apostle Paul. And Paul's writing this, right? He's saying, don't choose me, people like me, to be an elder. He's not saying that, okay? It's not saying that he's not forbidding men who are, uh, not necessarily he's forbidding people who are divorced or people who are, uh, he's not forbidding people to be remarried after divorce or the death of their spouse. These are allowed by Christ even in other places in the scriptures, there are exceptions. Nor is it necessary teaching that he can't, he can't be a polygamist, though that definitely is true. What this, past, what this is, requires of, a, of an elder is that he must be a faithful husband. He must be a one-woman kind of man. A one-woman kind of man. He's going to be a man who has only one woman in his life, and it's not his mother. Right? It's his wife. His wife, unless you're, you know, single. But if you're single, it's good, still good to find a wife. Okay? A one-woman kind of man. It's so that his, the woman that he's married to is the mar- woman that is, he is devoted to, committed to. He seeks her, her, her good. He does not have anyone else's heart but her. He loves her as Christ loves the church. He is faithful to her in his heart and in his deeds. A man who is faithful in this way will be then faithful to the church as well. He won't be a pastor who leaves for a more greener, more pretty church. A church that has a bigger building, better, a lot more, uh, a lot more uh, programs. He's not going uh, to leave the church despite her sins that he discovers. Oh, this church is really messed up. I'm looking for another church. You don't want pastors like that. You want a pastor who will be there till death do you part. Even when the church is dying and weak, he will be there to the end. He can be committed to see the church grow in holiness. And he learns these things because he's learned it from being a husband. He's learned it from a life where he's striven to be the the Christ-honoring, godly man that the scriptures call him to be. That's what we kind of, this is what we look for in the scripture, in our elders. We desire to see men who are godly husbands. Not only is an elder to be a godly husband, but he is also to be a godly father. Paul writes to Titus here that an elder is one who is to have children who believe, it says, according to the New American Standard, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Now, I would prefer to interpret this as having children who are faithful. And I'll explain this in a little bit. Not accused of dissipation and rebellion. There's a, the interpretive issue is this, that the word that is translated believe or could be translated faithful is a word that can be, mean both. It can mean believing in the sense that he is a believer in Jesus Christ. He believes the gospel. He is a Christian. or They are Christians. Or it could mean uh, having children who are faithful. In the sense that it could mean faithful to the faithful to, uh, <clears throat> to the faith, or, but in this case, faithful to their parents. That is, they're faithful to the instructions of their parents. They're obedient to their parents, to their parents' instructions, to their parents' uh, directives. They listen to them. Submiss- they are submissive to their parents. So is this, because the question really, is this about belief or is this about behavior? I do not believe it's about a, belief, one's, a child's belief. Because 
It is asking of elders what they can never do. There is no elder, and there's no man in this room that can make your child believe in Jesus Christ. You cannot do it. Trust me, parents have tried. They racked their brains. I have the godly parents come, my, come and talk to me, and they're grieving because their child, whom they've raised up, does not believe upon Christ. And their heart's broken. They constantly pray. They constantly love their child, but their heart's broken because they cannot. And it's not because of any fault of their own. They're godly men and women, godly parents. But still, they cannot. Only Christ, only God can make someone a believer. So I do not believe that that's why. It does not seem that that would, would be what God can. Of course, God can sovereignly do it. You can take that angle. But I believe that instead, the attitude of faithfulness of these children is meant. It's the behavior of these children. Because that's what the next phrase says. Children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Not accused of debauchery. This is the idea. They're not just living a wild party, unruly, uncontrolled lives. They're under submission. They're under obedience to their parents. And that a parent can do. You can use... As a young parent, I'm, we're uh, parents, Cindy and I, we're learning try to how to train our, up our children to obey us, to follow our instructions, to, to, to live in submission to our authority. Not just because we, we have some power trip, hopefully it's not because of that, but because we believe that's good for her. Because when she learns submission to us, to me and my, and my wife, that she will learn eventually in due time to submit to our Heavenly Father. She does not learn submission in the home. She's not going to learn submission out there. So we need a godly father who will see the responsibility to raise up children who are faithful, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Because, and then when you do that, you is a skill that is necessary that translates to the church. By the way, the parallel, the parallel of this 1 Timothy 3, 4 is also about behavior. The elder is one who must keep his children under control with all dignity. Again, behavior, not belief. Now, hopefully, this behavior does flow out of belief. But it's not about belief. It's behavior. Every father has the responsibility to raise up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He will do so through his teaching and his example. A father acts as the, chief, as the primary shepherd to his children, to his family. And if they are not submissive to his leadership when he's had them all their lives or most practically all their, all their lives, <laughs> then it calls to question whether the congregation will submit to his leadership. It will call to question whether he has the skills, the giftedness to teach in such a way and live his life in such a way that, that the church would then follow his instructions, his example. Now, lest we think that we are holding elders to a higher standard, we are not. These are things that we would expect of all fathers, right? How many of you fathers are, are, do you think Christ says, well, you don't need to be a godly father. You don't need to raise up your children in the way of the Lord. You don't need to discipline your children. You don't need to teach them to submit to you. I hope no father's here like that. We all want to be godly fathers. These are, and so, but elders are called, required to be this because they are to be examples. Well, God is looking for men who are above reproach, who will, be, who will show, be above reproach not only in their lives in general, but especially in their family life. We are looking for such men, and God is raising for such men to be elders of this church. Please join with me in praying that God will raise up such elders. But also, I would want to give an exhortation to all the men out there, all you men, even the junior hires out there. By Jewish culture, you guys are men already. You'd be men. Be men. I want to invite you men, though maybe you say, I'm never going to be an elder. I'm never going to lead Christ's church. That's not my thing. God's not calling me. I know I'm, I'm not gifted teacher. 
Okay, all right, if you know that you're not a gifted teacher, that doesn't mean that you should not strive to be a shepherd. Because God's going to entrust somebody to your life. Whether in the ministry of this church or whether in your family. God wants you to be a shepherd of them. Be the best shepherd of whatever God and whoever God has entrusted to you. Rise up to that which place. And be open to the fact that as God enables you to be a shepherd of your ministry, your junior hires maybe, your little brothers, your sisters, your wives, your children, your Sunday school class, your fellowship group, your ministry, as God enables you to be faithful in those things, perhaps the Lord will reveal to us that God is calling you to be an elder of Christ's church. This church needs elders. Needs men who will be godly men who will rise up. Pray for us. Pray that we, God would raise up such men. And I would invite men to be such men. Strive to be such men. Because these are not only qualifications for elders. These are qualifications that God wants for all of God's people. That we would be people above reproach. We would be godly husbands. We would be godly fathers. And for many of our sisters out there, you say, well, it's, okay, that message doesn't apply to me. Well, pray and support the men in your lives, the brothers, the husbands, the wives, no, brothers, husbands, fathers, sons, people in your ministries. Support and encourage them to be such people, to be such a man. And then may God raise up these godly elders to lead Christ's church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for your word and thank you for this challenge. Lord, raise up for your church the men whom you call to shepherd us. Raise up godly men who are above reproach, not only in, in the world and in, in the church, but particularly in their homes. Lord, teach them from their homes and their relationships with their wives and their relationships with their children to be godly, to Christ-like shepherds. Father, who can be, who can, who can be sufficient for such tasks? Lord, none. But yet we recognize that you enable us. You gift us. You give us your spirit. You give us your word. So you sanctify us, Lord. You shape and mold us to be such men, and we pray, Lord, that you would do so. And Father, help us as a church to, to encourage such men, encourage our, even our elders in training, encourage those who we don't recognize yet, but Lord, we th- perhaps may even look at them and say, that is one whom God is calling to be an elder of this church. Now we pray for them and encourage them to, to rise up to the case, to take on the ch- more charges to shepherd the flock here, to not be afraid because if God calls them, God will sustain them and make them, make them the overseers and elders and pastors of Christ's church that he has wills them to be. And Lord, we ask these things for the, so that your church would be healthy, that, there would be, uh, that this church would be guarded from those who would contradict, that you would raise up these men who would teach us sound doctrine that leads to godliness so that Christ would be magnified in this church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.